What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is The Moral Act, How to Correct for Historical Racist Injustice. You're maybe not familiar with the Moral Act, or maybe you only know it by name, but you're probably familiar with at least a few land-grant universities, even if you don't know them as such. These are colleges and universities such as Texas A&M University, Clemson, Auburn, Purdue, Michigan State University, and many others. The Moral Act is the federal law that is the genesis of such institutions. The law, which was named after Justin Morrill, the congressman who introduced it, allowed for each state to receive 30,000 acres of land for each of its congressional seats. Each state could sell these lands to raise money to either create a new school or give the money to an existing college or university in the state. The purpose was to encourage the study of agriculture and military training at these institutions. The original act was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln in 1862. In 1890, a second Moral Act was passed. This law required that each state either cease the consideration of race and admissions decisions at their existing land-grant universities, or create a land-grant university specifically designated for African-American students to attend, essentially adopting the Plessy versus Ferguson doctrine of separate but equal six years before that landmark case. Many states opted to create an additional land-grant university specifically for African-American students rather than admit these students to their existing institutions. This led to the creation of 18 such land-grant universities. 
These are some of the well-known HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities. You may be familiar with some of these institutions as well. Colleges such as Prairie View A&M University, Tuskegee University, and Alcorn State University. Still, you have probably heard a fewer of these HBCUs, which tend to be much smaller than their 1862 Moral Act counterparts. As Catherine Weedle explained in her 2019 article, these new institutions created by the Moral Act of 1890 were neither just nor equitable. In 2013, the Association of Public Land Grant Universities published a policy brief that described some of the inequities between the universities created by the 1862 Morrill Act and those created by the 1890 Morrill Act. The brief was authored by Dr. John Michael Lee Jr. and Dr. Samad West Keyes. I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Keyes and discuss this brief, his research and the inequities that exist between universities created by the Moral Acts of 1862 and 1890. I'm Samad West Keys, uh, and I, my current role, I serve as program officer uh, at Ascendium uh, Education Group, uh, also known as just Ascendium, uh, within our Removing Structural Barriers portfolio. Uh, when I wrote this uh, brief, however, I was uh, working at the Association of Public and Land Grant Universities within the Office of Access and Success. Uh, with my colleague, John Michael Lee, uh, who actually co-produced this uh, with me. The Moral Act of 1890, which at first glance may appear to be an attempt to create opportunities for African-Americans in higher education, seems to actually perpetuate historical inequities. I asked Dr. Keyes about his thoughts on this topic. How, from your perspective, how does thinking about legislation from the 19th century uh, impact how we understand systematic racism, racism in higher education today? So I think in order for us to, I guess, in order for us to move forward, we have to know where we come from, right? And so I think that, um, like I said, this was more so an opportunity to uh, figure out what was wrong to highlight what was wrong in an effort to change something. And so my belief in life is I can't hold you accountable if I if you don't know what you did was wrong, right? Uh, and so, or if you don't know what you're doing is wrong. And so in this particular instance, I think that um, it was more so about showing that there is an issue here. Uh, now, the challenge within all that is you have to make sure that people understand that they know what they do, what they were doing is actually wrong. <laughs> and so that takes a little bit more convincing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would say, if anything, the idea here for us was that in order for us to really begin to uh, galvanize interest across these different stakeholder groups, uh, it was important for us to sort of say, hey, there's a problem. And so when we're looking at sort of advancing uh, or addressing or understanding systemic racism, it's really a matter of sort of going back and looking into history and saying, well, what, uh, what, what, what have we done, right? And how did we get here uh, is a big, big question. Uh, and if I'm, if, if I'm honest with myself, I think that that's just the problem that we deal with. So we can't really address systemic racism. So I used to be a former high school teacher uh, and I used to, um, 
I used to uh, tell students and teach about just different things that were, I guess, that tied to systemic racism. Uh, the students didn't want to hear that, right? Uh, the students weren't interested in learning about uh, how the Ku Klux Klan may have uh, reestablished themselves right on Stone Mountain and here in Georgia, right? Sure. Um, they didn't care to hear that because what they they didn't believe that it impacted what they did today or how they live today. Uh, the same can be said about this this and other sorts of literature that sort of go back to try to say, hey, there's been a systemic problem here. There's been a historical uh, imbalance. Um, people don't want to listen to it. And so I always I have these sort of philosophical or deep conversations with myself sometimes. So it's good to have it with somebody else right now. Um, <laughs> I think there's a fear, right? Uh, when you're talking about systemic racism, if we look back at what we've done in the past, um, we have to change. And what does that in change? And what does that change entail, right? How does it impact me? Uh, uh, how does it impact my livelihood? Uh, and so, I think that there is a reluctance to look back at historical data uh, for that reason, right? Because it's going to let you know that you have to change something, uh, and it's also uh, in, incites fear because people don't understand how it will impact them in the long run. Uh, and so tying it back to this brief, right? Or it, just to this in general, I think that while you can highlight that there are disparities in funding, right? Across these different institution types, um, now it becomes a matter of, well, what do we do, right? How do, how do the 1865 land-grant institutions, what does that mean for us? Are you going to take away from my pot now? Um, because of the fact that you want equality, you want equity, right, uh, within all of this. And so I think that that's the bigger question. Um, and I can remember throughout my time at APLU, uh, there was a, a push to have another institution join the 1890, the Council of 1890 institutions. And I can remember the institutions with the, that, that were already within the 1890 council said that we were fine with another institution joining our ranks. Hey, they're strength in numbers as long as they don't take from my money, right? Because we're already stretched thin as it is. Um, and so when you think about it, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the people's fear, once again, in, in addressing how do you move forward um, as it relates to systemic racism, has a, it's, it's tied to them not knowing how it will impact them in the long run. That importance of funding to universities is the focus of the policy brief co-authored by Dr. Keyes. Over the years, several other laws, such as the Hatch Act, the Smith-Lever Act, and the Evan Allen Act provided structure to the ways that these universities and institutions could receive funding to help with their research, particularly as it related to agriculture. Provisions were put in place that required states to match funding dollar for dollar from some federal resources to each university. There is a difference, however, in this requirement of state one-to-one -one match funding between the predominantly white 1862 universities and the historically black 1890 institutions. From 2010 to 2012, over 60% of the land grant HBCUs did not receive the entire one-to-one -one state match funding. While the one-to-one -one match funding requirement for 1862 universities cannot be altered, states can apply for a waiver of this responsibility for funding to 1890 universities.
The result is less state funding to the 1890 institutions. I was curious whether these trends had changed at all since the 2013 policy brief was published. Your 2013 policy brief illustrated inequities in state one-to-one match funding between the 1862 and 1890 land-grant universities. Whether formally or informally, have you observed any advancement or efforts to narrow the disparities in the, in the, in the funding between these two sets of institutions? So I can't point to specific advancements um, and I, I'll, I'll I admit I'm a little far removed from uh, this report, um, sure. I guess, uh, not this report, but even just in conducting this sort of research at this point. But I think that the biggest advancements uh, have been in helping both institutions and advocacy organizations that fight on behalf of the institutions has empowered them, right? Uh, it's giving them something in hand to say, hey, I, you know, this is, I, I want what's right. I want what's due to me and my institutions. Uh, and I think that that's the biggest advancement, right? Uh, because in the past, there, there hasn't been anything uh, to, that folks could have in hand to say, this is, this is proof that we're being treated, right, inequitably. Mm-hmm. Uh, in comparison to some of our other uh, institutional counterparts. Uh, and we see this played out um, often from time to time, even just in the price gouging that exists across um, different institutions for different services. Uh, I have examples just it, given my in my career where I've seen uh, certain, I guess, software, educational software, ed tech software providers um, charge a larger PWI, um, a better rate than they did the smaller, lower resource HBCU that's right around the corner. Wow. And the idea here is that one, you think that the institutions don't talk, uh, but two, that I, 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 I think the issue goes back to this idea of the inequities. We have like there's no that we don't, we don't have anything going back to the report. It was something in hand for folks to advocate for themselves. Right. In a situation of price gouging, uh, I don't have anything but the contract that a proposal that you gave to me and. Mm-hmm. Can I really go and show you the, the proposal of the school around the corner and say, here, right. it's proof that I know that you're treating me badly, right? Mm-hmm. You can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this particular instance, I think it gave folks something in hand to advocate for themselves, right? It gave them something that they could go back and say, look, we know we're being mistreated and here's proof. Uh, and I think that that's the biggest advancement. And from there, it was the responsibility. Once you know better, you do better, right? Uh, it was a responsibility of the organizations, the systems to actually make the necessary changes. Um, And we haven't, at least I haven't, uh, tracked what changes came as a result of having this information. But I think the the biggest goal for advancing the voices of these institutions that we were researching was to give them something that they could use to advocate for themselves with, right? Uh, And that, to me, is an advancement worth noting. Absolutely. And so even if... um you know, you said maybe we'll be able to give specific examples of advancements. Are you aware of institutions using the report and the information that to advocate for themselves? 
Oh, certainly. I, awesome. I think um, I, 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 I know of many examples actually, uh, and I think it's actually still being used now. Um, I, I get contacted often, uh, just like I got contacted by you, right? And I'm like, wow, this report still has legs, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it, once again, it's a conversation starter, right? right? It's the tool that you can use to be able to say, we know we've historically been treated wrong or been treated in a way that's not on par uh, with our institutional peers. Uh, let's make sure that we correct this, right? And let's make sure we put the, put a plan in place to ensure that we correct this. Um, and so that's, I, I know a couple of uh, presidents uh, even that still use the tool, uh, use it as a tool to just in having conversations to say like, we don't wanna go here again. I was interested in how Dr. Keyes had gotten involved and interested in this type of research. I wanted to know um, how did you become involved with research about land-grant institutions? Uh, it was kind of happenstance, right? Um, I think that for me as a first-generation college student, I have this, I guess, knack for equity, right? Equity for all. And um, when I took the job at APLU uh, some year, I guess a while ago now, uh, when I took that job at APLU, I was really more mesmerized at the idea of being able to build on my interest and passion of equity. However, along with that came the responsibility of uh, managing our uh, Council of 1890 colleges and universities. Um, and so I will say there are multiple things that sort of sparked my interest in land-grant universities, one being my background or my lens as a first-generation college student, uh, the other being, um, I guess, my background as a student who attended a minority-serving institution um, and my interest in minority-serving institutions, specifically historically Black college and universities or HBCUs. Uh, shout out to Morehouse College, by the way. Um, but I think it was also, uh, and working closely with 1890 land-grant institutions uh, that sort of piqued my, I guess, continued interest in sort of figuring out um, how they fare in comparison to other institutions. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I was a fish out of water. Uh, you know, I went to a small liberal arts, private liberal arts college, Morehouse, right? Uh, and then to have to learn about this, uh, this, I guess, other side of the house, which were land grant institutions, um, it was so much knowledge and so much information that I just had to digest. It was, it was a lot. So I think it, I probably was more so intrigued at just something different. Sure. Um, and that's what sparked my interest in wanting to learn more. Um, that's what sparked my interest in even writing this brief, right? Um, it was just the idea that there was a whole world of HBCUs that were different from the one that I attended or even the ones that I knew about growing up. Uh, and this was my chance to dive deeper into them. The policy brief authored by Dr. Lee and Dr. Keyes examined disparities in funding from 2010 to 2012. With such obvious disparities, I was surprised that I couldn't find similar comparisons between 1862 and 1890 land-grant institutions either before or after these dates. Um, you mentioned um, the 2013 policy brief that you co-authored um, 
and I, I noticed that a lot of the information that was included in that brief came from a 2013 Office of Access and Success 1890 matching survey. It's kind of a two-part question is, have other similar surveys been done? And then if so, you know, how would one access that information? And if not, why do you think that that hasn't happened before or since? Have other surveys been conducted? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Uh, we have not conducted any additional surveys after uh, we conducted this one. Um, and I think that was partly because while the survey was one portion of the data that we received, it was also receiving, um, I, I, at that time I was inspired by Olivia Pope, right? Uh, and I really wanted to figure out how do I get this data? And much of the data that we had, um, in addition to the survey that we conducted across the 1890 institutions was from the US Department of Agriculture, right? Uh, and even though that data, and this is making me go back down memory lane, uh, even though the federal data is, uh, you can get access to it, the steps in order to get access to that data uh, was crazy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really felt like I was on some sort of a clandestine mission uh, just to get data. The show, I remember calling folks, um, sure. calling multiple people, trying to figure out, okay, hey, uh, who's the right person I talked to? I just met with this person at USDA, and they told me I should talk to you. I met with this person, they said, no, you're the wrong, right, you're the wrong person. I'm sending emails and asking, hey, I sent you an email. Um, can you respond to my email? Uh, wow. Can you get me access to this? And so I think the process that it took it to, either, to even get the data to compare, right, uh, was so much that um, I think I was going back to what I said before, was driven by the fact that it was a challenge. Uh, but two, I wanted to learn something from this, and sure. I want, and and so I think that uh, when John and I set out on uh, finding this, like I remember coming back to him and saying, um, "I can't find it. Like I, like we can't. Yeah, we can't get this data." And and we're fraternity brothers, and so he would charge me and saying, "Okay, so you really going to give up? Like, and, uh, <laughs> sure. like are we really giving up on this?" And I'm like, "Nah, I can't give up." You know, so right. I think uh, we held each other accountable uh, in that regard. Um, but I think that the process to even get it um, was a lot. Uh, why hasn't it been done again? I would say is also because. Our goal wasn't to sort of continue to report the news, right? But we really wanted to use this brief as an opportunity to advocate uh, and to say like, look, something's wrong. Like something ain't right here. Uh, and I think that it achieved that. Uh, and so I think we could have continued to be, I guess, um, I, I usually say you can be a thermostat or a thermometer, right? And I think we used that brief as an opportunity to be a thermostat, but it was also we're, I mean, a thermometer, right? The report that there is an issue. But now that we know that there is an issue, how do we change something, right? Uh, and so we can keep reporting on, hey, there's disparities in the funding. Or we can say, hey, we told you there are disparities in the funding. Now let's figure out how we do something about it. I, in looking at the recommendations um, that, that you make in this brief to policymakers, um, there's kind of four recommendations. And if you're okay, I'd like to just kind of run through those real quick. Uh, and my, my question as you kind of listen to these and think about it is, is what if any different recommendations would you make today? So 
Uh, the four that we have is one, states should ensure the 1890 land-grant universities receive the one-to-one matching of funds from the state in a separate line-item budget. Two, states should ensure that both 1862 and 1890 land-grant universities receive the percent of matching funds in their appropriation dollars. Three, states should ensure that the process to request and receive matching funds is the same for 1862 and 1890 land-grant universities. And then four, federal legislators should provide oversight to ensure that states meet their obligation for providing the one-to-one matching requirement and should incent states to provide the same percent of formula match funding for both 1862 and 1890 land-grant universities within their state. So again, the question is, what if any different recommendations would you make today? So I'm probably a little bit more radical than I was back then. (laughs) Um, And I guess if I would have to add something now, I would say these would stick. These are still the same, but I would add something that really uh, focused on providing additional funding, uh, reparation funding even, for 1890 institutions uh, to make up for the the mistreatment that has been done uh, for for so long, right? Uh, And so I think that if I would do anything or I would add anything, it would be to uh, consider how do you create a special uh, set aside or pot of money uh, that would be earmarked uh, specifically for 1890 institutions. to advance their work, right? To provide or to get them to a point where they can even be on a level playing field. Uh, Because you can't really change the systemic sort of, uh, I guess, um, historical, right? Uh, Sort of pieces that have led them to be at this point. You can give me a hundred dollars today because you cheated me out of my hundred dollars, but that doesn't still make me that I'm still not on your, on your wavelength. Right. And so what does it take to get these sector of institutions at a place where they can even be considered, uh, partners or equal peers to the 1862 land grant institutions, uh, I would say set aside a a special pot of money, call it the reparations fund even, uh, to pretty much, um, give them the resources to advance to a place where they can actually be considered a competitor uh, or a peer to 1862 land-grant institutions. Dr. Key's recommendation for reparation funding reminded me of something my five-year-old daughter told me she learned in her class recently. She told me that her kindergarten teacher taught her that fair is not the same as equal. In terms of racism, Author Ibram Kendi put it this way, if racial discrimination is defined as treating, considering, or making a distinction in favor or against an individual based on that person's race, then discrimination is not inherently racist. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. Someone reproducing inequity through permanently assisting an overrepresented racial group into wealth and power is entirely different than someone challenging that inequity by temporarily assisting an underrepresented racial group into relative wealth and power until equity is reached. While the 2013 policy brief focused on disparities in state one-to-one match funding, 
I wanted to know in what other ways Dr. Keyes thought the various iterations of the Morrill Act may have perpetuated systematic racism. Other than one-to-one matching, uh, I would say the, the ways in which institutions were assessed, right? Or what considered, what constitutes readiness. Um, I think that there are readiness and or ability to perform, right? Uh, And so many institutions, and we see this time and time again with even accreditation, um, they're at a place where they're put at a disadvantage because of less for for whatever reason, right? Um, and so it could be funding. It could be that you don't have the financial solvency or stability that the that is needed in order to even apply for funds, right? It could be that you don't have the uh, the, the the organizational structure necessary to even be considered for these funds, or you don't have the office on your campus that this particular pot of funds says that you should have, right? Uh, And when you look at how stretched many HBCUs are, uh, in many cases, there are people who are wearing multiple hats and that office may not exist, but the person is still doing the work, right? Uh, And so I think that that's a way uh, outside of the one-to-one matching that institutions are sort of put at a disadvantage uh, based upon the criteria that it even takes to even receive the funds. our structures may be different. We're not a we're, we, we're not a monolith, right? And given that we're we're performing at a lower resource, we're I guess with less resources, uh, we're not able to in some cases uh, provide or show that we have the same structures as some of our more better resource peers. Uh, and so I think that that's another way that sort of perpetuates this idea of systemic racism. Uh, if it's not the funding, then it's going to be, okay, well, uh, your structure isn't right, or your books don't seem to reflect this, or you don't have this particular person on staff at your organization, or you don't have this center uh, at your institution, right? Um, those are other things that should be considered for um, when you're looking at, I guess, other factors that may perpetuate this idea of systemic racism within the Moral Land Grant Act. As Dr. Keyes gave recommendations in his 2013 brief that might help bridge the gap between 1862 and 1890 Moral Act institutions, and then further those recommendations in my interview with him, the question that may need to be answered first is, why does this all matter? So it seems really obvious, but for the for the benefit of our discussion, can you explain um, why it's important to narrow these kind of disparities? Because it's the right thing to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty simple, right? When you put it because, like that. Because it's the right thing to do. I think we've always been, and I say we, and I'm speaking on behalf of uh, HBCUs, have been expected to do more with less. Just imagine what we could do if we actually had the same thing that our our our, our brother and sister institutions have, have right. Um, and so I think that you can't continue to expect people to overproduce and with with little, right? Um, and I think that that's why I, I think when we talk about like I, I just I, I always have a, a I get a little I guess uh, riled up uh, because that's been this the 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 name of the game for black people in general right is do do more with less i mean you look at the even some of the 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 
quote unquote black cuisines, right? Uh, that you know we that we eat at our at our family functions, right? It was a matter of doing more with less. It's just been our story, and so why do I have to do more with less, right? Why can't I have what's owed to me, what's due to me? Um, why can't I have what somebody else has, right? Sure. Um, and so I think that it, if we actually were given the opportunity to be on a level playing field, just imagine how much more we could do, right? Uh, because we're doing some phenomenal things with less. Right. Just imagine if we had what everybody else had as an institution, as a people, um, that's why it's important, right? That's why it's important to narrow these disparities. Um, it's not because of the fact that we're entitled, we feel entitled to something as an institution or a people. Uh, it's because it's our right, right? Um, that's, that's why it's important to, to, to eradicate these disparities. Um, and so I don't wanna preach about the more with less, but it's true. But I think it's also because it's our right as a people, as an institution, as a sector, right? Uh, you can't say that you're about educating people, but hey, you educated, we're gonna give you 50 cents on the dollar, but there's other sure. students gonna get a dollar. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I think it's important to continue to uh, make the charge for eradicating disparities and creating a, a equal playing field. Um, that that was what education was about, right? I think maybe it was, or maybe that's what they told us it was about. Um, you know, but you know, sure. you, people live this idea that, or live with this idea that if I do get this education, right, that it will position me to live this life of happiness, right, uh, the American dream. Um, is that true? I guess is like, or, or are we just saying this so you can make me feel better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing for institutions. You say provide education to these people, to these citizens to make them greater individuals so they can contribute to uh, society, um, but do it with less. Well, do you really want me to do that? Or are you just telling me to do this because you want me to feel good or like uh, you want my people to feel good? Um, I think that's the, those are questions that are still not answered given the way that we're being treated, both as uh, a people and a sector of institutions that serve the people. Well, what, um, what questions should I have asked you that I didn't, or what else would you want to share? This is always the awkward question at the end of the interview. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I actually think that you asked a great deal of questions and I appreciated the opportunity to sort of reflect it back to just the, um, it's, it's, it's while the 1890s uh, experience is just that their experience is also reflective of a larger issue uh, of systemic racism that exists uh, within the nation. And so I think that this is a microcosm, right? This is a small blip, uh, but it's reflective of the entire experience of black mm -hmm. people. Um, and so uh, I'm, I've just been happy to be able to sort of draw the connection and speak with you about it. Um, and so I think that you did a great job in sort of tying the two together um, because you, I think they're oftentimes looked at in isolation, systemic racism, sure. higher education, right? Sure. How do you begin to how do you begin to connect the two without making people feel, um, gosh, I was about to curse, like crap. <laughs> As discussed with Dr. Keyes, the necessity for change seems obvious. 
especially when considering such glaring disparities as those that exist in state match funding for institutions created by the Morrill Acts of 1862 and 1890. Why is it that states can ask for a waiver to not pay the match funding to the institutions created in 1890, but don't have a similar option for institutions created in 1862? These issues certainly are a microcosm of the systematic racism that exists in higher education and throughout society today. If you're interested in reading the entire policy brief authored by Dr. Keyes and Dr. Lee, or you want to read more about the inequities and the moral acts as discussed by Dr. Weedle, or you're interested in the practices of anti-racism proposed by Ibram Kendi, please see the show notes for this podcast episode. We'll conclude this podcast with my wrap up with Dr. Keyes during our interview. Dr. Keyes, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me and uh, and not knowing from a random grad student, you know, kind of kind of saying yes. And so I appreciate that. Not a problem. We've all been there. Uh, I, I, you know, when I actually received your email, um, I was like, Samaj, you have to do this uh, because you were in this you were in this spot at one point in time and you were hoping somebody responded to your email. Uh, well, so it's been, it's it been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University, in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe 003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.